I don't really think creativity is bounded by walls. If you're super passionate and love what you do, I don't necessarily think you need to be sitting in a cubicle in order for that to be facilitated and for that to kind of occur. As long as companies have the right people in place who really love what they do, the stuff that they're trying to push out, creativity, I think, can be found anywhere. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is Artie Beavis. He's the Chief Marketing Officer and Editor-in-Chief of Hackster.io, an Avnet community and the world's fastest growing developer community for learning, programming, and building hardware. He's been recognized for his achievements and contributions to the industry. Artie was named a Top 50 Marketer at DMN, and he joins us today to discuss his career and how he engages the talent community to accomplish amazing things for some of the world's biggest brands. Hi, I'm Artie Beavis, CMO and Editor-in-Chief of Hackster.io. Hackster is a community of engineers and developers from across the world. It's part of the Avnet Corporation family of communities. And on the side, I'm also consultant to numerous technology brands that range from semiconductors to Internet of Things startups. Well, I'm, I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to talk. And, and I really want to dig into Hackster and the community you guys have have built, which is amazing. But before we get started, I, I just want to talk about the shift to remote work that a lot of people are experiencing. We talked a little bit about it before we we jumped on the show, but how has the shift been in your experience as more people have started to work remotely? Yeah, so being an online community, we're definitely at an advantage where a lot of the stuff that takes place already was virtually and it was online. One thing that this whole pandemic and the shift to remote and virtualization has really helped us with is a lot of companies are now looking for ways to tap into that audience now that there's no physical events. And Hackster provides them with you know the platform to do so. So we're unlike a lot of companies that I think are kind of struggling to wrap their minds around how are they going to kind of you know adapt to the current situation. We've been prepared for years. And now I think it's just it's really nice to see more and more brands kind of understanding where Hackster fits into the ecosystem and how they could leverage our capabilities. And things have been pretty good for us. Well, you guys were required not too long ago. How has it changed now working for a larger corporation and your personal work that you're doing and, and how you operate day to day? Yeah, so Avnet has been fantastic. Hackster, we were definitely, you know, not the, I wouldn't say the rebel child of the organization for a while, but there was that sort of thing where, what are we going to do with this, you know, cool community and these like, you know, hip workers? Um, because obviously our tone and voice was a little bit different than, you know, the typical corporate sort of um, tone. However, uh, working within their sort of ecosystem has been fantastic. They've embraced us and started to leverage us, you know, at the beginning of the funnel on the ideation stage of taking some sort of project and bringing it to market. So how do you take this prototype, this concept, and how are you going to make that into a viable mass consumable 
product. And we've really figured out the recipe for how to make that work. So it's been a great experience so far. And it's the freedom and flexibility. You know, it's been unparalleled. Yeah, the thing about Hackster and Avnet, which is super interesting to me, it's an example of a company realizing that talent is global, that there are amazing people all over that participate in communities and want to provide value. And so it was a, you know, from a strategy perspective, it, it was brilliant. Give me some examples for people that may not know Hackster. What are the types of projects that are done? Give me some examples of the talent that are out there and the value that the community provides to large corporations. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, taking a step back, um, back in maybe 2016, there was this revolution. It was called the maker movement where all of these hobbyists, do-it-yourselfers, tinkerers were all like working in their, you know, garages and workshops, coming up with really neat projects and, you know, just really just kind of embodying that sort of mentality of, you know, let's all come together as a giant show and tell and really demonstrate what we're working on. But that mentality of making an LED blink and kind of putting together some circuits on a breadboard has definitely shifted into more of a, you know, enterprise grade sort of more professional maker, if you will, um, sort of audience over the last few years. And, you know, we went from those cutesy sort of projects of watching something blink or maybe like, you know, a cool clock to now, you know, doing everything from we just finished a contest with ARP on hacking menopause. We're doing something with smart parks on helping preserve wildlife in Africa, um, leveraging the Internet of Things. So you're starting to see this kind of seismic shift from just working on, you know, hobbyist projects. But now it's kind of coming all full circle to, wow, this is really some sort of life changing real world application that is starting on Hackster and is now going to be deployed in the actual um, world. So you see everything from, like I said, IoT devices all the way to wearables, to virtual reality and augmented reality, to pretty much anything. It's it's pretty awesome. Well, I watched Adam, the the CEO and founder, uh, who I've known for, for quite a while, start the idea many years ago by himself trying to figure it out, realizing that there are tons of people that have amazing skills. They just need to be linked up with opportunity. As you've seen the community grow, why are people engaging in the Hackster community? I think one of the things that large companies are, are trying to understand is they, they hear about this freelance talent. I think sometimes they believe it's all, you know, more low-skill talent out there. And the problems you're solving and the examples you provided are not things that are simple, right? It takes, it takes pretty high skills to, to do that. Why do high-skilled people participate in Hackster at, at such a large scale? So I think, you know, that's a multifaceted sort of thing. So there's obviously some of our contests offer monetary prizes. So you have the, you know, person who may or may not have lost their job recently, given the current climate to, you know, they could pick up a few thousand dollars with this really neat application. And they're really intrigued by that. Um, there's the networking factor. So you got to consider some of our partners, everybody from, you know, a Microsoft to a Google to an Amazon. Um, when we're working with these, you know, teams, if you stand out, you're going to make yourself known. So it kind of has that sort of networking effect as well. And then there's the educational aspect. There's so many interesting things happening these days out there um, and new trends and cutting edge technologies that it's really tough to stay abreast of all the stuff when you're, you know, working your day-to-day -day job. And, you know, people come to us for webinars and workshops to really, you know, advance their career so they could brush up on their skills and also, you know, pick up on new ones. And that's another service that we offer. And, um, you know, I think it's that total sort of cycle of education, networking, and just, you know, the opportunity to win prizes has definitely been alluring. 
And on top of that, we've also made the uh, shift to becoming a news network for the latest and greatest in the hardware industry. So over the last, you know, probably six to eight months, we've launched what we call Hackster News. Um, not the most original title, but it works. It's been a really, really interesting journey um, to see how this, you know, little blog has now taken off into one of the go-to sources for everything from IoT to wearables to machine learning and AI. That's another value add that we're definitely delivering because people come to us now to consume their day-to-day sort of content before work, after work, during work. And it's now, you know, kind of accruing that sort of audience. You talked about the great work you're doing at Hackster, but let's go back into your work history a little bit and your beginnings of really understanding the talent economy and working with freelancers when you started your own agency. What were some of the the challenges as you were starting your career that you experienced that led you to believe in this new way of working? Yeah, so I was really fortunate to kind of tap into the social media world right at the nascent stage of Twitter, Facebook, they were just coming out. Um, I was, you know, this fresh kid in college doing my thing and realized that this was going to be a, a real game changer. And I really wanted to make sure that this was something that I could kind of really wrap my arms around and know the ins and outs of it before everyone else. And by doing that, I was fortunate to pick up some really, um, you know, decent jobs right out of the gate. But the only thing, the challenge that I always saw was social media for the first few years. It was always trying to get that buy-in. It was you were always trying to sell what you were doing, why you were doing, when you were doing, you know, how is this going to deliver ROI to the bottom line, you know, all of those typical questions. Obviously, when I had a full-time job back in 2012 on um, social media, if a company was going down, um, social media unfortunately was going to be the first one on a chopping block. You know, they're going to cut their budget with social media and you know some of the digital marketing stuff. And unfortunately that happened to me. So I took a step back at that point and I realized, all right, I had a bunch of job offers over the past few months. Instead of going back to a full-time job, why don't I approach each of these companies and offer them my services and capabilities you know, at a price that was going to be a lot less than me going to them full-time, but at the same point, allowed me to work remotely and start you know, this quote-unquote agency um, right off the ground. It worked. A lot of these companies loved the idea. They were interested in figuring out how social media was going to apply to their business, and they commissioned me to do that. So I'm over, you know, just about a year and a half, I grew the company to a decent enough size in terms of revenue and um, some freelancers to be able to, um, you know, position myself for, for potential acquisition. So that was a really cool experience. It was a lot of challenges. It was quite the journey because, like I said, it was really, you know, such a new thing. And there was a lot of education, both internally and externally, as to what was social media. Fast forward to today, and it's you know a no-brainer. And more and more companies are now investing tons of budget towards their external properties. I talk often about next 10 years, jobs will change. And, and one of the examples I always use is a social media manager. 10 years ago, a company would not have a social media manager. And now that job is, is not only exist at scale. It's, it's extremely important. And you see the power of, of social media in, in a lot of examples. When you, over time, let's go back to 2012 and Ford, what were some of the objections that you ran into when you would go to a company and say, hey, I'm, I'm a freelancer. I, I'm not interested in being an employee, but I'm happy to engage with you and provide my value and focus on the outcomes. What were the kind of objections they had over that period of time? 
Probably trust. You know, I think it was that whole trust aspect. If you're not our employee and you're not on property, then how are we going to allow you to be the voice of our, you know, brand? So I saw that as the immediate struggle and kind of the barrier that I had to overcome right away and kind of, you know, demonstrate that you didn't have to be locked in an office. You didn't have to, you know, abide by certain guidelines. It was really being completely transparent, working closely with the teams, but kind of developing that relationship where they understood it's like a quarterback and a wide receiver. You knew what needed to be done and where the ball was going. And, you know, as long as, you know, you guys were both on the same page, it was easier than I originally thought. When you were hiring or engaging with freelancers for your social media agency and now at Hackster, uh, and I want, you know, some of the statistics are just unbelievable. You know, 600,000 social followers, newsletter is over 700,000. You went from 1K a month to to 800,000 a month in 2020. And all of that success or a lot of that success is being done with freelance talent. Let's talk about how you identify and engage with freelancers. What's the methodology or the the process you use to to build that network of freelancers to produce these amazing results? Yeah. So, you know, Hackster News, it's been a remarkable story, not to toot my own horn by any means, but, you know, this was like, you know, 16 to 18 hours a day of really figuring out the strategy architecting the blueprint and executing. And unfortunately, we don't have a huge budget. You know, we're not a multi-billion, not a million dollar sort of, you know, company who has, you know, endless means to throw towards certain campaigns in hopes of maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. It was a nice try. So we had to be really, really strategic in our approach as to if we're developing this content engine and we're trying to acquire a critical mass of developers and engineers and hardware enthusiasts that are going to come to our page every single day day in and day out to consume the news. We need to make sure, you know, we don't mess up. So we didn't have the headcounts. I didn't put any recs for new employees. What I did was, you know, we crafted the blueprint. We had the strategy and we realized, okay, these were the topics that our, you know, outlet was going to cover. And what I did from there was I went out and I made sure that we had one or two writers for each of those sort of topics, along with some overlap in case, you know, one or two people weren't able to contribute a certain week or, you know, somebody got ill or, you know, they went on vacation. I always made sure that we had enough of an editorial staff that covered each of these sort of interests and it worked. Um, We were able to kind of develop this, you know, 10 to 15 person editorial staff on a grassroots budget, which is essentially probably the same price as one or two full-time employees. And in doing so, our output was, you know, probably 10x of what it would have been with just one person. We were able to really, you know, hone in on each person's interests and their passions and kind of cater those articles to stuff that they're really interested in and what they wanted to cover and, you know, sink their teeth into. So it's been really interesting to see that, you know, this kind of come to life and it was all done purely on remote and freelance workforce. When I started working with freelancers exclusively, there was a lot of fits and starts. I had to retrain myself on how to hire a freelancer, which is much different than the traditional hiring process. Tell me an example where where it went wrong, where you learned and said, hey, look, this just wasn't a fit for either what I needed or they didn't have the skill set I needed and what you learned from that. Because I think there's a a challenge out there for people saying, hey, I I believe in this talent economy thing. I believe that there's a a ton of people that have great skills that can help my business accomplish things. And then they go and try it and it doesn't work. And then they sort of pan the whole idea and go back to the more traditional ways of engaging with talent. Give me some examples of of where it didn't go right and and how you learned and, and kept going. 
Yeah, so there's been a few instances, again, having this sort of freelance staff, you do encounter issues where you don't have a non-compete clause. So one immediate thing that comes to mind is a few of the writers that we approached contributed one or two articles. And then a few weeks later, you know, they kind of fell off the radar and lo and behold, they're on a competitor site. So I think right off the bat, it's, you know, competition. And how do you kind of create that relationship and establish that sort of, you know, kind of connection with your staff when they aren't full-time and they really aren't necessarily committed to just you. So right there, um, that's the first example. Second one, you know, there's been times where the idea of bringing on a few people to kind of cover certain topics and to join our uh, writer staff, you know, it seemed like a great idea at the time. However, you realize that either the grammar wasn't the greatest or, you know, the writing skills weren't necessarily top-notch. But you kind of pivot. So there's been instances where, you know, you realize somebody might not have been the best person for a blogger. However, they are super passionate about video work or, you know, other deep dives into products. And you just kind of pivot. So um, we've been able to do that with a few of our um, quote unquote employees as well. So those are the two that really come to mind right away. It's really, you know, competition and then kind of pivoting and figuring out if somebody is a good fit, but don't ne- isn't necessarily the right person for a certain tactic to try to figure out how can you adapt and keep them on board to keep that sort of creative juices going without you know just ruining a relationship. Yeah, I think it's been really impressive the, the type of, of marketing content organization you've been able to build. I want to talk about another award because <laughs> you are an award winner. You were named uh, the top 50 marketer and 40 under 40 honoree from the marketing community. And I wanted to ask, is, as you look at the agency space, you know, large companies reaching out to their agencies and that traditional, you have an account manager and, and you have, you know, build this relationship with a, with a big agency. How do you think that that space is going to either be disrupted or evolve over the next, say, a couple of years? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. So I'm already starting, you know, over the last few years, I think a lot of people could attest to. I've seen more and more like PR agencies definitely have been, well, I am going to be quoted on this. However, I think there has been a shift in the way how people were approaching PR agencies. I think because of social media and the connections you could form with the right content, you now are able to get right into the hands of reporters and editors without the need of a, a middle person. And that's something that we've even seen with Hackster. So we have really interesting projects and we also have really awesome blogs. And a lot of times we see um, new sites come to us now and just cite us as the original source, which is fantastic. Uh, so when you have, again, a very minimal budget, think outside the box, how am I going to you know, get our content seen by the right folks? So because of social media and by the right you know, consistent content, you could actually bypass PR agencies now. And that's something that we've experienced. And I think a lot of people are going to realize moving forward, they're not going to be so reliant on press as they once were. So that's one. And then in terms of just overall marketing, I think agencies are always going to be around. I think they're always going to... They're definitely going to have to adjust their sort of approach as things continue. Right now, I think even with the remote sort of working, I think you know a lot of companies are going to realize that they don't necessarily need to be in an office anymore and that they could actually create this remote work staff in marketing departments. So I'm starting to think that agencies, you know, I don't want to say that they're going to have a lot of competition, but I do see, you know, more and more people are going to say, oh, we could, you know, save some budget, hire more marketers and have them work remotely. So I could see, you know, agencies having to compete with a lot of in-house um, departments in terms of, you know, certain campaigns. 
One of the things I hear all the time, especially in the creative space is, well, look, a lot of our work is done. There's, there's that picture of a bunch of people sitting around a table or in like a cool setting, right? All the, all the companies, you know, show the pictures of how they work in these really cool brick offices. And, and that can only be done in person, right? It's, it's that in-person experience that allows these great ideas to happen. As you created Hexter News and, and as you do the creative work that you do, what advice would you give people that are now trying to do creative work remotely? A lot of caffeine. Caffeine definitely helps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think creativity is kind of bounded by walls. So if you're super passionate and love what you do, I don't necessarily think you need to be sitting in a cubicle in order for that to kind of be facilitated and for that to kind of occur. I think as long as companies have the right people in place who really love what they do, the stuff that they're trying to push out, campaigns that they're working on, and so forth, creativity, I think, can be found anywhere. So I think companies, given the current situation in this climate, I think they're going to start to see that more and more, that productivity is going to be up because people are going to be super passionate about what they're doing. And that passion is also going to be, you know, a derivative of that creativity. You know, that it's going to go hand in hand with creativity. One of the things that, that I've experienced, and I just kind of want to get your thoughts on it, that as I've formed freelance teams, the diversity that is brought into that team, you know, whether it's ethnic diversity or gender diversity or thought diversity or cultural diversity, always makes the product better. One of the things that I get excited about when I'm, I'm working with people who come from different backgrounds is I learn a ton. And, and the project usually comes out better because they bring experience and perspective I don't have. Whereas when I was working in a captive setting for large companies, it was very homogeneous. It was, we were all kind of sort of the same type of people. What has been your experience with the diversity of teams and, and your thoughts around the benefits? Yeah. So Hackster, you know, being a community, all of these projects are open source. So when people are submit stuff, the whole idea about open source is to be a community and be collaborative. And we've really embraced that sort of ethos in everything we do. So I think as I kind of formed this team of writers, you know, to your point, I didn't want them to just be, you know, everybody be the same. It was really trying to take that kind of open source love for everyone, bring on different locations. So you know, trying to cover real-time news, you need somebody in Europe, you need somebody in Asia, you need somebody throughout the United States on Pacific time and Eastern uh, time, you know, just kind of having various locations and bringing those different voices, genders as well. You know, I think having a diverse staff of backgrounds is super helpful when you're trying to kind of hone in on the different voices. You don't want it to just be the same tone throughout the board. You know, it's nice to have a girl from New York, a girl from the Bay Area, a guy from the UK, it's nice to have, you know, one be an engineer, one be a developer, one be an embedded designer, one just be a, a quote-unquote maker. It's awesome when you're able to take bits and pieces from everywhere, almost like a general manager on a sports team, and, you know, pick everybody and kind of put them in different positions. And everybody has their skill sets and has their own, you know, intricacies and really cool things and kind of form this full team. I think one of the, the things I experienced is that you know, I think traditional management has been supervisory, right? I'm, I'm here, I'm your supervisor, I'm here to supervise your work. And you've talked about the teams you work with and the trust that you ask companies to put into you when you started your agency is the same trust that you're giving 
to the the people that are are writing for Hackster News, and that's very different than traditional employment. So I think when it comes to creating that remote staff, authenticity and transparency is key to creating that connection with them. If you're remote and you're you know halfway across the world from one another, just kind of building that relationship and kind of having that sort of connection with them, it's key. It's also paying. Uh, compensation is a huge aspect to the freelance economy as well. Unlike a typical job where you'll have a weekly or bi-weekly paycheck, as a freelancer, you don't necessarily have that luxury. So I think when you onboard certain freelancers, being able to pay them really you know, quickly on time or even expedite the process for them is paramount. And that really establishes a different level of relationship too, because they're going to provide for you and really support your efforts just as much as you're able to do for them. I mean, that's one thing that I've really, you know, having had my own business in the past and have been, you know, a contractor, I understand the struggles of, you know, what it's like to chase down checks. And I've done everything I can in my power to, um, you know, make sure that our freelancers were taken care of and were able to, you know, pay the bills. No, that's that's important advice. The the other thing I've experienced that a lot of people think that, well, I'm going to go save a ton of money by using freelancers. And, And a lot of times that's true, but it's not that the talent you're paying less, it's all the overhead and other things and the efficiency you get from getting the right passionate expert to do the do the work. And my dad had a quote, and I'm sure many other people's fathers may have said the same thing, you know, you get what you pay for. And I found that, you know, the freelancers that we engage with, because we want top quality experts, have decent rate cards, right? And so, you know, I think that's one of the things to also consider. Hey, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I want to end this conversation with a quote that you have on your LinkedIn and just Mm -hmm. kind of get your thoughts on it as we close out. Quote is uh, from Walt Disney, one of your heroes. First, think. Second, dream. Third, believe. And finally, dare. Tell me how that inspires you and the work that you do. Yeah, so I think that's a quote that's certainly resonated with me throughout my lifetime, whether it be, you know, work related with Taxter on my side work, or even just an athlete, you know, coming up, it was one of those, everybody has dreams. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people are kind of persuaded not to pursue them as cliche as that sounds. But I think one thing that I've always been really good at is being tenacious. (laughs) And you know, if I have an end goal and if I have that vision, I'm going to do everything in my power to make it come to life. And whether it was playing tennis and, you know, certainly not the best player out there by any means, not having the record or sort of background to support any of these aspirations that I had, I was able to talk myself and market myself into ATP event and, um, you know, do some professional stuff with literally no, no credentials whatsoever, but just pure marketing and pure drive. And, you know, fast forward 12 years and here I am. And, uh, you know, the same sort of thing with Hackster. I saw that there was a huge need and opportunity to create this sort of content engine. And once I was able to kind of figure out, okay, this is what I want to see come to life. I just worked backwards and kind of created that strategy and the approach and then started putting together the puzzle pieces and took the chance. I think, I think that's it's it's great advice, and it has a lot to do with the work you do at Hackster and your career, which is why I was excited to have this conversation. You know, we live in a world where 
technology has been democratized and talent is in a lot of ways been democratized. So the only thing stopping you in many cases from fulfilling a dream is your own desire to show up and, and be persistent. So I, that's why I wanted to talk to you about that quote. Artie, thanks again. If somebody wants to reach out to you and, and learn more about the work that you're doing, what's the best way to contact you? Yeah, so I think the two best ways would be on right here on LinkedIn, backslash Arthur Beavis, or otherwise hit me up on Artie at Axter.io. I'm always open to meeting people and answer any questions that anyone may have. And we'll put those links in the show notes. Artie, thank you so much and stay safe. Yeah, you too. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy. 